and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams of pub quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Joel. Hello. <laughs> oh, man. How are you? I'm good. Good. I, um, I downloaded like the whole back catalog of the Dixie Chicks today. What? <laughs> what? Oh, man. This other podcast that I love um, called Punch Up the Jam. Oh, yeah. With mm-hmm. um, Demi Edge eBay and Miel Bredo. Um, each week they pick a song and it's either it might be a good song already or a terrible song mm-hmm. that everybody loved. And then they kind of break it down line by line and then that. try to make it better. Anyway, this week they did Cowboy Take Me Away by oh, the Dixie Chicks. And that's a good one. Damn. I went and you bought went and downloaded all of it. the songs. From the Dixie Chicks. <laughs> I really liked um, Goodbye Earl. Oh, yeah. it holds up. It I does hold up. I jammed out to that one Great today. song. Great song. If anybody walked by my office between like 3.05 and 3.15 today, <laughs> I was playing Goodbye Earl on loop. <laughs> That's awesome. The video is really goofy. Yeah, it's great. But the song definitely holds up. Yeah. Yeah. No, they have a bluegrass quality and their their harmonies are so tight. Yeah. I love I, it. There's nothing wrong with Dixie Chicks. I love it. Yeah. I... I wish there was a movie with them in it. A movie with a them movie in with it. them in it, like a musical singing movie. It. Oh, they could do a musical. Yeah, that would easily. Be cool. Yeah. I think some of them have acting backgrounds or something. They're yeah. very beautiful. Oh yeah, yeah, that would be cool. Voices like angels. Oh, like angels. So, <laughs> anyway, yeah. Speaking of movies speaking of movies. i guess um that's one of my bad topics at trivia i'm not i am not strong in the movie yeah. front i'm very bad at like act like directors I'm very bad at oh, movie yeah, yeah. directors and mm-hmm. stuff and bad at movies that like came out before like 1994 oh i mean you're preaching to the choir here yeah obviously yeah but yeah I so get it. um i think one of the major directors that i think we're all supposed to know mm-hmm. everything that there is to know about him um is who i decided to talk about Ooh. today so we're talking about stanley kubrick oh boy So, oh boy, Stanley Kubrick. I may have seen more Stanley Kubrick movies than you. You might have. It's definitely possible. Yeah. By accident. Well, it's easy to enumerate because Great. he has a specific, he has a, a uh, finite amount of movies. <laughs> number yes. of movies. Spoiler alert, everyone. He is he dead. He is dead. Yep. Um, yeah. So Stanley Kubrick, um, an American film director, screenwriter, and producer, um, frequently cited as one of the greatest and most influential directors in cinematic history. And his films, which are mainly adaptations of novels or short stories, cover a wide range of genres and are noted for their realism, dark humor, unique cinematography, extensive set designs, and evocative use of music. So some background on Stan. Okay. Um, Stanley Kubrick was born in July 1928 to Jack and Sadie Kubrick, the oldest of two children. The Kubricks lived in the Bronx, New York City. And though his parents had been married in a Jewish ceremony, um, Kubrick really didn't have a religious upbringing and he later professed an atheistic view of the universe. So young Stanley, he was considered an average student, but he was very interested in literature, photography, and film from a young age. His dad taught him chess at age 12 and it became a lifelong interest for him. 
So Stan's dad also gave him a Graflex camera, which jump-started his fascination with still photography. And he soon worked as kind of a freelance photographer, providing photos to several print sources, including Look Magazine. And his early knowledge of cameras became very useful to Kubrick later on when he switched to motion pictures. So um, Kubrick married three times, uh, first to his high school sweetheart in May 1948 when he was 19. Uh, They lived together in Greenwich Village and divorced three years later in 1951. He then married his second wife, an Austrian-born dancer and theatrical designer in 1955, and they moved to Hollywood. But then they got divorced in 1957. But third time's a charm. That same year in Munich, um, Kubrick met German actress Christiane Harlan, who played a small role in his film Paths of Glory. And Kubrick married Harlan in 1958, and in 1959, they moved to a home in Beverly Hills with Harlan's daughter from a previous marriage. Um, Stanley and Christiane remained together for 40 years until his death in 1999. And besides his stepdaughter, they had two daughters together, Anya and Vivian. Okay. So Kubrick moved to the United Kingdom in the early 1960s to make Lolita because of easier <laughs> financing and freedom from censorship and what yep. he considered interference from Hollywood studios. Don't worry. We will get into all that. Oh, I have so um, many thoughts. Kubrick made Britain his permanent home soon after, and he also shunned the Hollywood system and its publicity machine, resulting in little media coverage of him as a personality. In 1978, Kubrick brought an English manor house called Childwickberry Manor. No. Yes. That's too twee for him. Childwickberry Manor in Hertfordshire, (laughs) UK, which he basically used as a studio and production office. So Kubrick rarely left England during the remaining 40 years before he died. Uh, Many of his later films were produced in England, where he lived, and um, some claim that he developed a fear of flying stemming from an incident in the early 50s when a colleague had been killed in a plane crash. Uh, Kubrick was a real cat man. Cat man? <laughs> real cat man, once owning 16 felines at oh, one point. Oh, like a cat man. Like a, like yeah, he cat likes man. cats. Yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> like a cat lady, but a man. Yeah, catman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 16 um, cats? 16 cats. At one time? Yeah. Yeesh. Um, he often let his cats lay around his editing room after filming completed as a way of making up for the time that he lost from them when he was working. Ugh. I bet his editor friends loved, loved it. That. Oh, yeah. Cats walking all over the equipment, <laughs> hitting buttons. Ugh. Not given a, a shirt. Sh- no. Um <laughs> Uh, By the time he died, he had a Highland Terrier, seven Golden Retrievers, one Scotch Terrier, eight cats, and four donkeys. Holy, wow. Real animal lover. Yeah, I'm kidding. Well, good for him. So uh, Kubrick was a real perfectionist, and he assumed control over most aspects of the filmmaking process, from direction and writing to editing. He took meticulous care with researching his films and staging scenes, working in close coordination with his actors and other collaborators. He often asked for several dozen retakes of the same scene in a movie, which resulted in many conflicts with his casts, as I will point out later. Oh, boy. Um, Despite the resulting notoriety among actors, many of Kubrick's films broke new ground in cinematography. Among the notable aspects of his desire for privacy in his home and film life was that he never talked about his movies while they were being made Mm. nor did he like discussing them even afterward except to friends he most of all avoided discussing their meaning oh yes yes so again Mm. he's very private rarely gave interviews people would actually come to his door looking for him but at the time so few people knew what he looked like and so he would then tell them that stanley kubrick wasn't home oh that's pretty good you know what actually uh now that i'm trying to think about it i cannot conjure his face in my mind Uh, uh, we'll share a picture of him okay. when we when we talk about. I this imagine episode. a beard, like a dark beard, no, and like no. a uh, like a Neanderthal style forehead. Can. And I'm being shown a picture. Oh, okay. You know what he looks like? Um, he's got a real 
Al Pacino eye, like a sad, okay. droopy eye, you know, a real Italian eye. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Very round, very big, droopy, yeah. sad looking. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a full dark beard. We'll share a picture. <laughs> <laughs> um, later in life, this man, Stan, big fan of American sitcoms, Seinfeld, Roseanne, and The Simpsons. Oh, my gosh. Um, he was also a fan of American football and had his friends in America tape games and send them to him. So as well as being a sports fan, he was fascinated by the craft of television commercials. And he was reportedly particularly impressed by how they could effectively tell a story in 30 seconds. Huh. Um, nowadays, Kubrick is widely referenced in pop culture and the TV series The Simpsons is said to contain more references to Kubrick films than any other pop culture phenomenon. Oh, that's kind of nice. Maybe well, that's why he liked it so much. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, on March 7th, 1999, four days after screening a final cut of Eyes Wide Shut for his family and the stars of the movie, Kubrick died in his sleep at the age of 70 after suffering a massive heart attack. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a good way to go. In your sleep. Sure. That's the dream, you know. No pain. You just drift off. Then you're on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, thoughts about death with Lauren. Yep. Oh, I got more. I got lots. <laughs> Don't worry, we won't talk about it. Um, So Stanley Kubrick directed 13 feature films and three short documentaries over the course of his career. And I am going to tell you about them. Please. Um, So before we get into it, um, one more thing. How do you know if you're watching a Kubrick joint? Mm. Director trademarks include the use of the one-point perspective and a shot of a character with his head down and eyes up. This is often referred to as the Kubrick stare. Mm. Um, Long tracking shots down hallways with parallel walls and often pivotal scenes taking place in a bathroom. Mm. Um, there are elaborate expensive sets bombastic classical music scores yeah film structures usually with three acts and every Kubrick film ends with the end oh okay good okay. to know and I realize I've kind of been going back and forth on pronunciation between Kubrick and Kubrick depending on what point in the sentence I am <laughs> um, I think that his family preferred that it's Kubrick with Kubrick. It, like sounds like with the Q okay but so good to know sorry well, everyone, it's all right if I'm going back and forth yeah all right. So his early career. So he was a photographer mm-hmm. and then he got hired to um, work for RKO Pathé. Okay. And the yeah. This is America series. So RKO stands for Radio Keith Orpheum. Mm-hmm. Um, they had that big, they had a big um, production studio, yeah. big, you know, music hall. You see RKO Productions. So he got hired to kind of film um, some short documentaries for them. So the first one is called The Day of the Fight. This is 1951. It is shot in black and white. It's a documentary showing Irish-American middleweight boxer Walter Cartier during the height of his career on April 17th, 1950, The Day of a Fight with Middleweight Bobby Jameson. So it's kind of like a short documentary following the guy around Mm -hmm. what he's doing the day of the fight. Uh, Then they show the fight and they, you know, show the outcome. Okay. Pretty straightforward. First one. Great. Next, Flying Padre. Another 1951 short subject documentary also done for RKO Pathé's This Is America series. I hope that's about a priest who can fly. Close. Oh, man. Okay, please. Tell me. Tell me everything. Um, This is also shot in black and white. It's a documentary about Father Fred Statmuller. Yes. A Catholic priest in rural New Mexico who uses an airplane called the Spirit of St. Joseph to travel from one part of his 4,000 square mile parish to the next. That's very sweet. And the film is nine minutes long. That's lovely. Flying Padre. Okay. So two years later, 1953, we get his feature directorial debut. This is called Fear and Desire. Okay. So um, this is an American anti-war film set during a war between two unidentified countries. Mm. The film was distributed with the tagline, 
trapped four desperate men and a strange half animal girl. What? <laughs> what? That was not what I was expecting. <laughs> what animal was she? Uh, what she's half just animal? like a, a like native a girl. Oh, I think. Yes. Yeah. Um, so the screenplay was written by Howard Sackler, who was a classmate of Kubrick's from his high school in the Bronx. Um, Howard Sackler later actually won the Pulitzer Prize for his 1968 drama, The Great White Hope. Mm, okay. um, so this film... Kubrick wasn't happy with it. Uh, he removed his first film, Fear and Desire, from circulation over his dissatisfaction with oh, it. Oh, wow. And the only commercially available print belongs to the George Eastman Museum yeah. in Rochester, New York. What up, what up, what up? Mm-hmm. Local man. Everybody, you should come to Rochester. We got a lot of cultural stuff. A lot of things stuff. Here. Yeah. Um, in 1953, the same year as his um, as Fear and Desire, we have The, the Seafarers, which is another okay. short documentary. This was made for the Seafarers International Union. So this is actually a 30-minute color film about the Brotherhood of the Sea, the largest maritime labor organization in the United States. Great. Again, Great. very straightforward. Yep. Um, in 1955, we have Killer's Kiss. Ooh. So this film noir is about Davy Gordon, a 29-year-old Walter Waite New York boxer at the end of his career, and his relationship with his neighbor, taxi dancer Gloria Prince, and what? her violent employer, Vincent Rapallo. Do you know what a taxi dancer is? No. You know what? The first thing that popped into my head was a woman dancing on top of a taxi. Okay. That's a great picture. <laughs> I had to look up what this meant. So okay. a taxi dancer, ready? And this is... This goes to show how far away we are from the 1950s. Okay. A taxi dancer is a paid dance partner in a partner dance. Oh. So like you would go to a dance hall. Yeah. And if you didn't have a partner to dance with, you would pay a taxi dancer to dance with you at the dance hall. Okay. So that you could not be alone. Yes. And the dancer's pay is proportional to the time he or she spends dancing with the customer. Oh, wow. So, so that's like what the taxi paper. part comes in. Oh. <sighs> wow. I had never heard of this yeah. before. That's amazing. Me neither. Huh. Anyway, that's in Killer's Kiss. Killer's Kiss. And then a year later, I really think he's he loves this word, the killing. Okay. 1956. <laughs> yeah. So this is another film noir. It's based on the novel Clean Break by Lionel White. And it's about a veteran criminal named Johnny Clay planning one last heist before settling down and marrying his gal Faye. This is Love basically it. a heist at a racetrack, but people do get hurt. Oh, no. Um, and Quentin Tarantino has said that the killing was a significant influence on his 1992 film, Reservoir Dogs. He would. Yeah. All right, so those are kind of all his early career. Okay. Okay. And now at this point, you will have heard of most, if not all, of these films. Great. During the golden age of Stanley Kubrick's career. Golden age. Love it. So all of his films from this point on, except for one, were nominated for Academy Awards or Golden Globe Awards in various categories. Wow. Um, The only Oscar he ever actually won was for Best Special Visual Effects from 1969's 2001 Space Odyssey. Really? That's the only um, Oscar he ever won. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, so starting his golden age, we have Paths of Glory. This is 1957. Okay. Uh, this is the film where he met um, the woman who would become his third and you know final, final wife. Final wife, yeah. So this is another American anti-war film based on the novel by Humphrey Cobb. And the film takes place during World War I, starring Kirk Douglas as Colonel Dax, the commanding officer of French soldiers who refused to continue a suicidal attack. Mm. Um, Dax later attempts to defend them against a charge of cowardice in a court-martial. And they were originally going to prosecute 100 soldiers, but end up reducing it to three soldiers, one from each of the companies under Dax's command. So it was basically like... 
um, kind of like Charge of the Light Brigade. Oh, okay, you know yeah. how they mm-hmm. were they were they just kept going anyway. And this is like he didn't want his troops to just go into this and just get slaughtered. So he commanded them not to. And so then they all got court martialed instead. I see. Okay, Paths yeah, yeah. of Glory. Um, the title of the book and later the movie comes from a stanza in the Thomas Gray poem, Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard. Okay. If you know, it's a, it's I a, um, I think it's a famous poem. <laughs> I'll anyway, take your word for it. The yeah. line is, the paths of glory lead but to the grave. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. So this was actually based loosely on the true story of four French soldiers executed in 1915 during World War One under General Gerard Réveillac for failure to follow orders. Mm, so mm-hmm. Paths of Glory, 1957. All right. Kirk Douglas. Who's still alive. Still alive. I can't believe it. He's like 102 <laughs> or something insane like that. <laughs> well, you're, you're not, you're not with three with him yet yeah because next is Spartacus oh okay 1960 yeah this is an American epic historical drama film with a screenplay by Dalton Trumbo uh, based on the novel by Howard Fast and inspired by the life story of the leader of a slave revolt in antiquity Spartacus and the events of the third servile war so this film starred Kirk Douglas as Spartacus Lawrence Olivier is the Roman general and politician Marcus Licinius Crassus, uh, Peter Ustinov who won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor as slave trader Lentulus Batiatus. Um, it says John Gavin as Julius Caesar, um, Gene Simmons as Verinia. Gene Simmons <laughs> of Kiss? <laughs> <laughs> He's that old. Oh my God. Um, and Tony Curtis as Antoninus. Antoninus? Antoninus? Tony Ant- Curtis, can I tell you? Handsome guy. Oh, so handsome. And um, Lawrence Olivier, too. Oh, Ooh, yeah. Damn. Yeah. yeah. This was a hot. Hot, hot, hot cast. Hot, hot cast. Yeah. Um, so the film won four Academy Awards in all and became the biggest moneymaker in Universal Studios history wow. until it was surpassed by Airport in 1970. Oh. So the film parallels 1950s American history, actually. So specifically um, that House on American Acts Committee hearings mm. and the civil rights movement. So um, the hearings where witnesses were demanded to name names of supposed communist sympathizers resemble the climactic scene when the slaves asked by Crassus to give up their leader by pointing him out from the multitude, each stand up to proclaim, I am Spartacus. Oh, and goes, yes, of I course. am Spartacus. Mm. So many subsequent films, TV shows, and advertisements have referenced or parodied this iconic scene. It took half a year to film, and 10,500 people worked on its production. Wow. Its $12 million budget was the most expensive movie in Hollywood history at the time, mm-hmm. and ultimately 50,000 extras were involved in the making wow, of it. Wow. That's, that's crazy. so many so people. So probably, if you're like watching this with like uh, some like great aunts and uncles or grandparents or something and they tell you that they were in it you can believe them yeah i mean they're probably right (laughs) (laughs) so spartacus spartacus a stanley kubrick joint great um he follows that up with lolita oh i have so many thoughts 1962 i know you do thank goodness so um in brief for those who are (laughs) unaware of lolita it is a british american drama film based on a 1955 novel by vladimir nabokov who also wrote the screenplay it follows a middle-aged literature lecturer who becomes sexually obsessed with a young adolescent girl the film stars james mason as humbert humbert sue lyon as dolores hayes who humbert calls lolita um shelly winters as charlotte hayes and peter sellers as Claire Quilty. So owing to the um, MPAA's restrictions at the time, the film actually toned down the more provocative aspects of the novel, um, sometimes leaving much to the audience's imagination. The actress who played Lolita, Sue Lyon, was 14 at the time of filming. Mm-hmm. And um, time for some science words. Yes. Uh, so 
Hebephilia, H-E-B-E-philia, is the strong, persistent sexual interest by adults in pubescent or early adolescent children, which is typically ages 11 to 14. This differs from pedophilia, the primary or exclusive sexual interest in prepubescent children, and from ephebophilia, E-P-H-E-B-O-philia, the primary sexual interest in later adolescence, typically ages 15 to 19. Which is... I was unaware that there were different, different determinations, kinds. but... Still um, makes your skin crawl. St- yep. Very, very... All very bad. Uh, <laughs> all but, illegal. Yep. Uh, but this is this is a term that comes up when you read about Lolita yes. is hebophilia mm-hmm. and they just have not hemophilia. Yeah. Hebophilia. Yeah, yeah, Do yeah. not get the two mixed up. <laughs> I'm a hebophiliac. <laughs> it's terrible. I bruise like crazy. <laughs> that's that's awful. Uh, yeah. Do not mix those up. <clears throat> so the story really effed up if you don't already know it. Yep. Um, so the guy's name is Humbert Humbert. That is the same first and last names. Yeah. Um, he's supposed to be a professor and he shows up in uh, New Hampshire for the summer where he meets Charlotte Hayes, a sexually frustrated widow who has a room to rent. Um, he declines until he sees her daughter, Dolores, who he nicknames Lolita. And he immediately becomes infatuated with her and he then moves in with the family not creepy at all nope um lolita goes to an all-girls camp for the summer and humbert or hum uh ends up marrying charlotte but he doesn't really like her at all no so um charlotte has a hysterical outburst when she reads hum's diary and she runs out in the street and is hit by a car and immediately killed so hum drives to the camp which is called Camp Climax. Yeah. Come on. I know. It is so, oh, uh, uh, so bad. So he drives to the camp to pick up Lolita. She doesn't yet know that her mother is dead. Okay. Yeah. It takes him so a while. They go stay in a hotel and Humbert commits statutory rape and yeah. starts a sexual relationship yep. with his stepdaughter, mm-hmm. who in both the book and the film is actually portrayed as a seductive teenager. Yep. So the two commence an odyssey across the United States, traveling from hotel to motel, and in public they act as father and daughter. Uh, after several days, Humbert tells Lolita that her mother is not sick in a hospital, as he had previously told her, but dead. Yep. Straight what? dead. What? Yeah. And she reacts like, mm, okay. All right. Yeah. So she stays with him. Yeah. And this is like some real Stockholm Syndrome bullshit. And in the fall, Humbert reports to his like teaching position as a professor and enrolls Lolita in high school there, being very overprotective of her. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, she escapes and is taken in by a man claiming to be her uncle, who she also gets into an underage relationship with. And his name is Claire Quilty, a guy that her mother had also previously had a fling with. Yes. And then Humbert ends up murdering Quilty a few years later after he discovers what has happened to Lolita. Yeah. Why? Yeah. It's why mm. was this so why was this popular? Uh, I mean, I mean, why, I mean uh, yeah, I mean, OK, so I read the book uh-huh. and I saw the movie twice. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I saw the movie twice was because I fell asleep the first time <laughs> I saw the movie. OK, so actually recently, actually, like in the past three months or whatever, it was on TCM and I was like, all right, I should probably finish this. Um, and it's different from the book. The book is definitely much more sexually explicit. Um, and, but it's not like overtly sexually explicit. So Humbert is like mm-hmm. the main narrator of the book and is like the overarching like narrator of the film too. Um, but he's an unreliable narrator and Nabokov makes that very obvious, especially like halfway through yeah. where suddenly Lolita, who was originally just like a little girl suddenly becomes like this seductive siren who like overtakes him with her desire. Yeah. Like it's, 
it's really like, okay, Humbert, you're a gross old man type of thing. Um, and the, the reading of it that I read somewhere was that Nabokov was writing it in the way, like it was supposed to be like shocking and titillating, Mm -hmm. but halfway through, um, it's not, it doesn't satisfy that urge in the reader. It just kind of becomes like, Oh no, this is just gross. Yeah. Like this guy is gross and this is a terrible story. And this girl has been like abused by this man. So, um, it's kind of like a bait and switch kind of thing in the narrative of the story. It's still not like, it's not a comfortable read. No. Uh, and it's gross. And the movie is only entertaining in that, um, Peter Sellers plays Claire Quilty and he like allows some kind of like witticisms in Mm -hmm. that make it kind of interesting. Um, and he plays like a very like sexy beat, like dark cigars, like cigarette smoking, jazzy, jazz, jazz Turtle guy. Neck yeah. Wearing. Turtleneck wearing. And there's a great scene. I told you about this of him. Like the first time he's seen, they're at like a high school dance and he's, he like grabs a girl and pulls her out to the dance floor. And he's just kind of like very like slowly and kind of sleepily like twisting dancing with this very hot girl and he's got a cigarette dangling out of his lips and his eyes are practically closed and he's just like she's like twisting around him like completely dancing him out of control and he's just kind of like beat poet like (laughs) um so that's kind of cute and funny but it's not it's i wouldn't recommend it it's not like a comfortable watch nope yeah Lolita is boof. Lolita. Also, her nickname in the book and in the movie is Lo, which is my nickname. And so I feel like, ew, that's gross. Like, don't besmeager my name like that. No. But how anyway. dare he? Lolita. Well, but speaking of Peter Sellers. Yeah. Links us to to Kubrick's next movie. Oh, okay. Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Steve this loves is that 1964. Movie. Yeah. So it is a 1964 political satire black comedy film that satirizes the Cold War fears of a nuclear conflict between the Soviet Union and the United States. The film, which was directed, produced, and co-written by Stanley Kubrick, stars Peter Sellers and George C. Scott and features Sterling Hayden, Keenan Wynn, and Slim Pickens. Oh, uh, Production took place in the United Kingdom, and the film is loosely based on Peter George's 1958 thriller novel, Red Alert. Mm. So the story concerns an unhinged United States Air Force general who orders a first strike nuclear attack on the Soviet Union. And it follows the president of the United States, his advisors, the Joint Chiefs of Staff and a Royal Air Force officer as they try to recall the bombers to prevent a nuclear apocalypse. It separately follows the crew of one B-52 bomber as they try to deliver their payload. Dr. Strangelove takes passing shots at numerous contemporary Cold War attitudes such as the missile gap, but it primarily focuses its satire on the theory of mutually assured destruction. And which each side is supposed to be deterred from a nuclear war by the prospect of a universal cataclysmic disaster, regardless of who won. Mm. So Columbia Pictures agreed to finance the film if Peter Sellers played at least four major characters. Oh my gosh. So the condition stemmed from the studio's opinion that much of the success of Kubrick's previous film Lolita was based on Sellers' performance, in which his single character assumes a number of identities. Sellers had also played three roles in The Mouse That Roared, which was a 1959 movie. Sellers ended up playing three of the four roles written for him in Dr. Strangelove. Mm-hmm. Um, among the titles that Kubrick considered for the film were Dr. Doomsday or How to Start World War III Without Even Trying. <laughs> okay. Uh, Dr. Strangelove's Secret Uses of Uranus. Oh, that's... And yeah. Wonderful Bomb. Um, A first test screening of the film was scheduled for November 22nd, 1963. 
What happened that day? Oh, my God. JFK was assassinated. Yep. My um, God. So the film was just weeks from its scheduled premiere, but because of the assassination, the release was delayed until late January 1964, as it felt that the public was in no mood for such a film yeah, any no kidding. sooner. And one line from Slim Pickens... Um, was a fella could have a pretty good weekend in Dallas with all that stuff Uh-oh. was dubbed to change Dallas to Vegas since Dallas was where Kennedy was killed. Yeah. Yikes. 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 You know, we should do an entire episode on Peter Sellers. He had like an incredible career and also kind of a tragic personal life. Okay. Like, um, there's a, there's a great book based on a, um, Jersey Kaczynski novel called Being There, which is a great book. Okay. One of my favorite slim, like mid-century novels. Um, and it's a great story, but he, it was like a very poignant performance of his because he wanted to be taken seriously as an actor. And it was a beautiful performance. He did a great job. And then at the end, the director in, insisted on including bloopers. Okay. Oh. And it's very like, it's a dramatic story yeah. about like, you know, about the, it's a commentary on society and a commentary on celebrity and this whole thing. And then it, while the credits are running, it's like, Peter Sellers is so funny. And Peter Sellers attributed that this was not to his knowledge until he saw it at the screen. Oh. Um, he attributed that to him not getting the Oscar that year or like even being nominated <gasps> oh, for the Oscar that no. year because he was like, why am I constantly like a dancing monkey? Like this yeah. was supposed to be the kickoff for my, you know, uh, dramatic career. So it's very interesting because I've seen the movie and read the book and the movie is so like, it's just really like it hits you hard. It's like yeah. really tragic and beautiful. And then all of a sudden it's like, like it's so it's so weird. Uh, poor man. I mean, he was really terrible to his children too. It's like a whole thing, but Ugh. Peter Sellers. Anyway, Stanley Kubrick, <laughs> fan of Peter Sellers. Yeah, <laughs> sure was. So yeah, Dr. Strange Love in 1964. So his next big thing, 1968, we have 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, yes. This movie is based on Arthur C. Clarke's short story, The Sentinel. Okay. And um, this is the only movie that... Kubrick worked personally with the author on. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. So um, this movie used his favorite piece of work, also Sprach Zarathustra by Richard Strauss, recorded by Herbert von Karajan as the musical score for the film. So it's very iconic. I played it as our like drop at the beginning of this episode. Uh Um, So the film, which follows a voyage to Jupiter with the sentient computer HAL after the discovery of a mysterious black monolith affecting human evolution. It deals with the themes of existentialism, human evolution, technology, artificial intelligence, and the possibility of existence of extraterrestrial life. The film is noted for its scientifically accurate depiction of spaceflight, pioneering special effects, and ambiguous imagery. Sound and dialogue are used sparingly and often in place of traditional cinematic and narrative techniques. So HAL is this computer h-a-l 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 you know the letter yeah that comes after k yeah l. l um h-a-l is likely a sly reference to ibm since each letter in the evil computer's name is one alphabetic letter away from the letters oh my in the computer company's name I just realized that that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Okay, very clever. Uh, Clark remained resolved to the fact that Hal, whose character was originally a female persona named Athena, actually stood for heuristically programmed algorithmic computer, and any no. connection to IBM was purely coincidental. <laughs> okay. Um, 
Kubrick was legendarily secretive about his movie, going so far as to have all the props for the movie destroyed so replicas couldn't be made. Wow. But there were a couple that he kept in his own private possession. Okay. Um, according to Carl Sagan, who worked with Kubrick on the film, mm-hmm. Kubrick was paranoid that he'd put all this work into getting as close to reality with the concept of extraterrestrial life as he possibly could, and then aliens would be discovered just before his expensive sci-fi <laughs> movie was finished. <laughs> what, so, what a specific thing to be freaked out about. To ensure his movie wouldn't become obsolete, Kubrick attempted to take out an insurance policy no. at Lloyd's of London to protect himself against losses in case extraterrestrial intelligence oh was discovered before the film's release. You know what? That does make sense, though, because that... <laughs> Actually, I turns I out I agree support, with this. Support it. I, I, I would... I besmeager that. I uh-huh. would besmeager it, except... This is 1968, correct? Yeah. So this is like space race. Yeah, like it this comes is, out in 1968. Yeah. yeah. So like they are, if they're going to find aliens, they're going to find it like within yeah. the next year. Yeah. So I can see him being like, oh man, they're going to space and they're going to find aliens and then my movie is going to be dumb. Like no <laughs> one's going to watch it. I can see that. So Lloyds of London declined the policy yeah. because they figured the probability of discovering extraterrestrial intelligence in such a short period during the mid 1960s was too small. Um, so yeah, this movie is basically my nightmare uh, where computers take <laughs> over too. and start killing humans. I've never seen it because of that exact right. reason. Nope. No, I can't I have do no that. interest. Nope. Nope. Also his movies of this era, like late sixties, early seventies, they're very slow moving. Yeah. They're very plodding. That. You have to be high to watch them. I just, I can't, I don't think I can really like sit through it. I don't think right. my brain would allow me to do it. So. Okay. So at this point in his career, Kubik really wanted to make a movie about Napoleon. <laughs> what? You know what? Uh, He's when, jumping all over the place. You know yeah, that. I was, yeah. I was not expecting you to say Napoleon <laughs> after that. So that's interesting. Okay. So yeah. So following 2001 A Space Odyssey, Kubrick originally planned to make a film about the life of French Emperor Napoleon. Okay. Fascinated by his life and own self-destruction, Kubrick made a great deal of time planning the film's development and conducted about two years of extensive research into Napoleon's life, reading several hundred books and gaining access to Napoleon's personal memoirs and commentaries. Wow. And with the help of assistants, he meticulously created a card catalog of the places and deeds of Napoleon's inner circle during its operative years. That sounds like an archivist's job. It sure does, doesn't it? Wink. Um, Kubrick scouted locations, planning to film large portions of the film on locations in France, in addition to the use of United Kingdom studios. The director was also going to film the battle scenes in Romania, and he had enlisted the support of the Romanian army. Senior army officers had committed 40,000 soldiers and 10,000 cavalrymen to Kubrick's film for the paper costume battle scenes. So Napoleon eventually canceled due to the prohibitive cost of location filming and the commercial failure of another director's Napoleon-themed film called Waterloo. So he spent all his time and energy. He really, really, really wanted to make a movie about Napoleon. And then the studios were like, yet. So what you could say, you ready for this? Yeah. I'm so excited about this. That his film about Napoleon was his Waterloo. Uh, that's that's all from us ladies and gentlemen this is and, our last uh, episode thank yep. you very much peak uh, joke <laughs> uh, all right continue uh, it's okay um but don't worry okay fans uh, of kubrick 
I'm not worried. In March 2013, Steven Spielberg announced his intention to create, in conjunction with Kubrick's family, a television miniseries based on Kubrick's screenplay for Napoleon. Oh. And in May 2016, HBO announced that they will produce a miniseries based on Kubrick's screenplay with Kerry Fukunaga as director. Oh, he's good. Yeah. Yeah. He is? Yeah. I I hear good things. Wow. Wow. So Napoleon didn't work out. But That's too bad. 1971, we get another seminal film. Oh, I can't wait. A Clockwork Orange. Oh, I've never seen it. <gasps> yeah, I haven't seen it because of the yep. alleged rape scene, which oh, I am yeah. not on board with. So A Clockwork Orange is a 1971 dystopian crime film based on Anthony Burgess's 1962 novel of the same name. It employs disturbing, violent images to comment on psychiatry, juvenile delinquency, youth gangs, and other social, political, and economic subjects in a dystopian near future Britain. Uh, the main character is Alex DeLarge. He is played by Malcolm McDowell, the central character. Um, he's a charismatic antisocial delinquent whose interests include classical music, especially Beethoven, mm. uh, committing rape, oh. Uh, and what is termed ultraviolence. Uh, he leads a small gang of thugs whom he calls his droogs. This is from the Russian word droog for friend or buddy. Um, so the film chronicles the horrific crime sprees of his gang, his capture and attempted rehabilitation by an experimental psychological conditioning technique by the minister of the interior named Ludovico. Um, Alex narrates most of the film in NADSAT, which is a fractured adolescent slang composed of Slavic, especially Russian, English, and Cockney rhyming slang. The film's central moral question is the definition of goodness and whether it makes sense to use aversion therapy to stop immoral behavior. Uh, Is this, is this, uh, the only scene I've ever seen from A Clockwork Orange is the eyeball scene. Uh, Nope. So um, in the film, in a famous scene, Alex is made to watch a series of films while his eyelids are forced to stay open the Mm. entire time. While filming this scene, Ralka McDowell's eyes were really forced to stay open. And McDowell ended up scratching the cornea of his Uh, left eye during the shoot. No, no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, When offered the part, McDowell mistakenly thought that the director was Stanley Kramer, the filmmaker behind movies like It's a Mad, 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 Mad World and Judgment at Nuremberg. And it wasn't until a friend showed him Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey that the actor actually realized who the director was. Oh, my gosh. Um, along with Midnight Cowboy, which we can't escape. Um, oh my God, yeah. Which won Best Picture in 1970. Um, uh, Clockwork Orange is one of only two X-rated films to be nominated for the Oscars top prize. Oh, I didn't know that. That's very interesting. X-rated. X-rated. Yep. Oof. X for extra violent. <laughs> X for don't see it. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I shouldn't say that, but I, I don't just, know. I don't know. I just, I... <sighs> I don't know. I, I just don't like super violent things. And I know it's supposed to be like a commentary on sure this or that. I mean, whatever, then I would but, rather read the book, you know? Yeah. Then it's less, it feels like it's a less of an assault on yeah, the senses. Yeah, then you can put it down. Yeah. And also no one is is being um, assaulted. Yes. Whether under acting mm-hmm. or not. Or yeah. under the care. Well, in the 70s, it's not like there was a lot of care being taken to make sure that everyone was comfortable on set right. and like all that stuff. So there is another another famous scene in this movie where he is, um, you know, committing rape um, that he starts, I think it's either whistling or singing um, the song Singing in the Rain oh, while no. committing this assault. Oh, no. Not one of the best movie musical uh-huh. songs yeah. ever created, mm-hmm. on, ever put on film. Yeah. That's terrible. It's terrible. I don't want to see this no. movie. Sorry, everyone. 
it gets the gets, it gets the, the stamp of disapproval from me. <laughs> okay, it's along red. with a bunch of the other ones I've already talked about. All right. Um. So after a Clockwork Orange, you know, we're near dystopian, near dystopian, dystopian <laughs> England. Um. Anyway, next is Barry Lyndon. So oh, okay. this is in 1975. So it's a British American period drama film based on the 1844 novel The Luck of Barry Lyndon by William Makepeace Thackeray. Okay. Did Vanity Fair. Yes. Um, so uh, The Luck of Barry Lyndon is a picaresque novel, which okay. means a genre of prose fiction that depicts the adventures of a roguish but appealing hero of social class who lives by their wits in a corrupt society. That sure also sounds like a lot of Dickens. Yes. Uh, I was going to say the picaresque mm-hmm. definition sounds like something that you had talked about already in the Dickens episode. Yes. Yeah. So Barry Lyndon, it's um, it stars Ryan O'Neill, Marissa Berenson, Patrick McGee, Leonard Rossiter, and Hardy Krueger. And the film recounts the early exploits and later unraveling of a fictional 18th century Irish rogue and opportunist who marries a rich widow to climb the social ladder and assume her late husband's aristocratic position. So this is like a big turn. Yeah. We have like, we have, we got space. We have turned the boat around. Yeah. We got dystopian Britain. We're, then we've got yep. classics. Here we are. Yeah. So um, in this film, Kubrick wanted to use as little electric light in the production as possible. Oh boy. Since we're in the, you know, we're in yeah. the 18th century. Dark times. He went so far as to get special lenses that had been designed by NASA, which he had specially mounted on cameras that could be then used only with those lenses. And these super fast lenses captured rooms lit only by candlelight perfectly, creating wow. a look unlike any other film. That's cool. And the candles Kubrick insisted on using to light the interior scenes also caused trouble. Um, Ryan O'Neill said, the problem problem was that if we didn't get the take we had to blow all the candles out and start with new ones and all the candles had three wicks so that was our trick and it wasn't easy to blow them all out <laughs> um Kubrick also wanted as much control as possible over how audiences viewed Barry Lyndon so in 1975 he sent a letter to projectionists showing the film with specific instructions on aspect ratio lighting and even oh what music needed to be played during the intermission of the film oh my gosh I mean this is the only one that on this list so far that I've been like I might see that. that. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, yes, it's his film. He can do whatever he wants and he wants people to see it in the best possible light. So of course, but on the other hand, if you knew like a film student in college that did that, you'd be like, yeah, jeez, Dylan, (laughs) God, uh, do you have to be like that? Like, good Lord, Mm -hmm. you know? So whatever. But he got some space lenses from NASA in order to film this better. But he's an auteur. So of course, you know, of course. Uh, we're pivoting again. Oh, good. Ooh. 1980, The Shining. Oh, jeez. I've seen okay, that a couple I have of times. Seen this one. So um, this is a 1980 horror film co-written with novelist Diane Johnson. And the film is based on Stephen King's 1977 novel, The Shining. Um, Stephen King was told that Kubrick had his staff bring him stacks of horror books as he planted himself in his office to read them all because he wanted his next film to be from the horror genre. Um, Kubrick's secretary heard the sound of each book hitting the wall as the director flung it into a reject pile after reading the first few pages. <laughs> Finally, one day the secretary noticed it'd been a while since she heard the thud of another writer's work biting the dust. And she walked in to check on her boss and found Kubrick deeply engrossed in reading The Shining. Okay. All right. Okay. So The Shining, it's if you don't know it, it's about Jack Torrance, who in the film is played by Jack Nicholson, um, who is an aspiring writer and recovering alcoholic who accepts a position as the off-season caretaker of the isolated historic Overlook Hotel in the Colorado Rockies. Staying with Jack are his wife, Wendy, played by Shelley Duvall, and young son, Danny, played by Danny Lloyd. Danny possesses The Shining, which is a psychic ability that includes um, him having the ability to see the hotel's horrific past. Uh, the hotel 
Bartell's cook, Dick Halloran, also has this and is able to telepathically communicate with Danny. Halloran tells Danny that the hotel has a shine to it, along with many memories, not all of which are good. And he also tells Danny to stay away from room 237. The hotel had a previous winter caretaker who went crazy and killed his family and himself. After a winter storm leaves, the Torrance is snowbound. Jack's sanity deteriorates due to the influence of the supernatural forces inhabiting the hotel, placing his wife and son in danger. Yeah. Okay. Principal photography took over a year to complete due to Kubrick's highly methodical nature. Oh, God. Actress Shelley Duvall did not get along with Kubrick, frequently arguing with him on set about lines in the script, her acting techniques, and numerous other things. Duvall eventually became so overwhelmed by the stress of her role that she became physically ill for months. At one point, she was under so much stress that her hair began to fall out. Uh, perhaps the most stressful scene is when Duvall's character, Wendy, is walking backwards up the hotel stairs, weakly swinging a baseball bat at her lunatic husband. The scene took 127 takes. No, that's... Which Awful. Which broke the record for most retakes of a single movie scene with spoken dialogue. Wow. The shooting script was being changed constantly, sometimes several times a day, adding more stress to everybody involved. Um, Jack Nicholson eventually became so frustrated with the ever-changing script that he would throw away the copies that the production team would give to him to memorize, knowing that it was just going to change anyway. So he learned most of his lines just minutes before filming them. Wow. Well, he didn't have a ton of lines. It's a it's a mostly quiet so, yeah, there's a lot of like long takes sure. of things. Yeah, but poor Shelley Duvall, Kubrick just tortured so, her. Yeah, on in set. that it's scene, awful. if you remember it, when she, it's like toward the end of the film and she's trying to fight off her husband and she has this bat and she is like in tears and she's like puffy and she's like just kind of like flailing at him. Mm. Uh, that's because she had been doing that for getting screamed at for the last. Yeah, she'd been psychologically tortured yeah. for the past several hours or mm -hmm. whatever how long it took yeah i mean you see her when he's like breaking through with the axe uh -huh. and she's literally like flinging herself around the tiny closet that she's in and mm -hmm. like freaking out that's like there's real terror real terror yeah. in her eyes like that poor woman was and she was never the same no like now she's like very <sighs> Poor honey. They had an interview with her a couple of years mm -hmm. ago and she's just she really has some broken. like mental illnesses now yeah. and it's not oh, great. Honey. Stan. Yeah. Way to go. Stan. God. Well, this movie was the first major use of the steady cam. All right. Uh, <laughs> on a lighter note, uh, steady cam was a fairly new invention in 1980. This allowed a cameraman to attach the camera directly onto his body with a harness. And this would create the same smooth effect of a camera on wheels or tracks, but allow the cameraman more freedom of movement. So um, if you can remember the scene where Danny's like riding his big wheel, like up and down yeah. the hallways. Mm -hmm. And so the, the camera shot is actually like from behind mm -hmm. him and it's moving along with him. So what they did was the cameraman was sat in a wheelchair with the camera strapped to his chest and somebody had to like push, push him, him up and down the halls That's really like funny. following the the it trick which it would be funny to think about yeah seeing. exactly um so uh kubrick again paid a lot of attention to detail so for the in international versions of the film uh kubrick shot different takes of wendy reading the typewriter pages that she found in her husband's office so in the american version it says all work and no play makes jack a dull boy yeah. over and over and over and over um so for this he does it in a bunch of different languages so for each language a suitable idiom was used in german uh was du hut kannst besorgen das wirst du be Nicht off Morgan. Never okay. put off till tomorrow what may be done today. Okay. In Italian, il mattino ha oro in bocca. The morning has gold in its mouth. 
just over okay. and over. All right. <laughs> uh, French, un tien vaut mieux que du tu l'aurais. One, here you go, is worth more than two, you'll have it. <laughs> I don't know what that, that doesn't is. make any sense. The equivalent of a burn the hand is worth two in the bush. Oh, okay. In Spanish, no por mucho madrugar amanse más temprano. No matter how early you get up, you can't make the sun rise any sooner. Oh, that's actually really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So just over and over and over on those sheets. So they they had our film all these different versions, but you know, picking up oh, that picking it up as and the international thing. So they would just splice that in for the yeah. foreign languages. Man, talk about attention to detail. Yeah. Jeez. We only got a couple more. There's a documentary called Room Two Thirty Seven yes. that Steve made me watch. Oh. Uh, yeah. You watched it? It was like our second date. He was like, This is a good movie. I was like, All right. Like, it's a documentary. It's your Steven? My Steven. On purpose wanted to watch a yes. documentary about a horror movie? Yeah. Well, it's a documentary about, it's basically people um, over footage of the movie talking about their different theories. Hmm, okay. And like talking about the individual scenes. Like, you see that back there? And then there would be like a little circle and that kind of thing. It is plodding, I will say. Oof. There is no beginning, middle, and end. It's just. <laughs> It's just like eight people in like in inter interjecting in between each other of like what their theory is about, like what this means in the shining. Oof. Yeah. It's crazy. It's awful. Anyway, please continue. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Steve. <laughs> I'm sorry you had to find out. Yeah, this I'm way. sorry. Now that we're engaged, I can finally tell you I did not like to room 237. Um, so he took a, he took a little break in the eighties. Great. But 1987, we get full metal jacket. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, I didn't realize it was that late. Yeah. 1987. I also didn't see this one. It is a war film directed and produced by Kubrick, starring Matthew Modine, Arlie Ermey, Vincent D'Onofrio, and Adam Baldwin. So the screenplay was based on Gustav Hasford's novel, The Short Timers, from 1979. And its storyline follows a platoon of U.S. Marines through their training, primarily focusing on two privates named Joker and Pyle, um, who struggled to get through boot camp under their abusive drill instructor, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, and the experiences of two of the platoon's Marines in the Tet Offensive during the Vietnam War. And the film's title actually refers to a bullet used by soldiers. Oh, okay. Um, I'm I'm gonna do a Vietnam War episode soon. Like I know I said that a couple months ago, it, but it I am gonna war. do one. I am gonna I am gonna do one soon, and so we'll kind of dive Great. more into the Tet Offensive and Oof. movies dealing with the Vietnam War yeah. in that in that period. There so, were a lot. Yeah, I sure are. Then finally, his last film, Twelve Years Later. Yeah, Eyes Wide Shut. Huh. Yeah, 1999. So um, this is an erotic drama film based Oof. on Arthur Schnitzler's 1926 novella, Trom Novel, also translated into Dream Story. So the story is transferred from the early 20th century Vienna to 1990s New York City. Uh, the film follows the sexually charged adventures of Dr. Bill Harford, who is shocked when his wife Alice reveals that she had contemplated having an affair a year earlier so he embarks on a night-long adventure during which he infiltrates a massive masked orgy of an unnamed secret society. You know. <laughs> of course. Of course. All of those in New York City. Yeah. I mean, and, there might be. I don't no, know. The, what do I know? Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, this stars Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, and Sidney Pollack. The film's production at 400 days what? holds the Guinness World Record for longest continuous film shoot. That's too long to film a movie, an yes. erotic drama. Um, during one scene, Kubrick had lead actor Tom Cruise walk through a door 95 no. times to make it just right. Okay. Now, at this point, he knows he's like close to death. <laughs> he's just he's just fucking with people now. Like, he's just like, I'm going to see how many times. Uh, 
Tom Cruise, though, I give him credit. He's crazy. And he is a Scientologist. But consummate professional. Yes. From what I hear. He walked through that door 95 times. And he, I'm, I'm assuming, did not complain about it. Who knows? Likely. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think I'm ever going to see this movie. No, either. I have no um, desire. But yeah, Kubrick died six days after showing his final cut to Warner Brothers. Huh. And to ensure a theatrical R rating in the United States, Warner Brothers digitally altered several sexually explicit scenes during post-production. Wow. All right. And then finally, posthumously, Kubrick is credited as a producer writer of AI artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. which came out in 2001 that was taken over by Steven Spielberg and dedicated to his memory. Yes. Um, you can really see the change over. Like there is a strict delineation between Kubrick, the Kubrick part and the Spielberg, Spielberg part. part. Yeah. Like in terms of directing. Yeah. Um, and I remember when I saw it, in 2001, I was entranced. Ugh. I thought it was wonderful. And then I saw it again a couple of years ago and I was like, oh no, this is just a bloated, <laughs> oh my God, there's just too much going on in this movie. Like it doesn't end. It just mm-hmm. keeps, like it keeps moving past the point where it could have been a good ending <laughs> until it was just like, this is not anything within the realm. But it is a very beautiful story about um, a, a, a familial love between a mother and a son. It's very touching. Hmm. Um, have you ever seen it? No, I don't know not. anything about this. It's, this it's, isn't my, that's not my Uh It's very category. lovely, actually, all to, like altogether. Mm-hmm. There's nothing scary about it. It's just very sweet okay. for all intents and purposes. But it is too long. Yeah. Too long. So. Well. Great. I learned so it. much. That was all the Kubrick joints you need to know. Wonderful. Thank you so much. All right. To, to kind of switch gears. Mm-hmm. Our quiz is called Cut. It's a quiz on female filmmakers in Hollywood and hairstyles. Question one. Shonda Rhimes is best known as the showrunner of the long-running television medical drama Grey's Anatomy, its spinoff Private Practice, and the political thriller series Scandal. But earlier in her career, she helped to co-write a 1999 award-winning HBO movie starring Halle Berry and was also the screenwriter for the 2002 film debut of Britney Spears' Name Either Movie. Question two, pay yo attention to this multiple choice. On whom would you find a distinctive hairstyle feature called a payot or payos? A, an Orthodox Jewish male. B, a Japanese samurai. C, a French can-can dancer. Or D, a Saint Bernard. Question three, check your watch. Based on a novel by the same name, what is the title of the 2018 sci-fi adventure film directed by Ava DuVernay, which made her the first African-American woman to direct a film that earned at least $100 million domestically? Question four. Also known as the father of the bob, which hairstylist popularized the close-cut geometric bobs of the 1960s worn by Mary Quant, Grace Coddington, and Nancy Kwan? Question five. Catherine Bigelow broke through the glass ceiling in 2010 when she became the first and so far only woman to win the Academy Award for Best Director for The Hurt Locker. Among the other Best Director nominees that year was her ex-husband, to whom she said, I do, in 1989, but later let go in 1991. What was his name again? Question six. Don't monkey around. Open wide and say, ah. 
The practice of cutting or shaving some or all of the hair on the scalp as a sign of religious devotion or humility is called what? Question seven. Lady Bird is a 2017 coming-of-age comedy drama about a high school senior, don't call her Christine, and the turbulent relationship with her mother. Previously known for writing and starring in several mumblecore films, what is the name of the screenwriter and director of Lady Bird? Question 8. Worn proudly by African women for centuries, what is the name of the protective hairstyle made by sectioning the hair into parts all over the head, then twisting those individual sections until they form mini knots? Question 9. Indian-American director Mira Nair is responsible for a slew of international hits, including the 1991 film Mississippi Masala and 2001's Monsoon Wedding. What was the title of her most recent film, a 2016 Disney drama starring David Ayoelo, Lupita Nyong'o, and Medina Nalwaga about a Ugandan girl who becomes a chess master? And finally, question 10. Pulling a page from Lauren's book, I'm going to name four potential names of haircuts or hairstyles, and you tell me if it's a real hair-related thing or if I made it up. First, a quiff, Q-U-I-F-F. Second, a burr, B-U-R-R. Third, frangipane, F-R-A-N-G-I-P-A-N-E. And fourth, telegio, T-A-L-E-G-G-I-O. I'll give you about a minute to think. I'll be back with your answers. Pretty good about that. Great. Uh, I think I'm. I think I'm going to do pretty good. All right. All right. Lay it on me. Here we go. Uh, Question one: Shonda Rhimes, best known as the showrunner of long-running television series on ABC. Um, Earlier in her career, she helped co-write a 1999 award-winning HBO movie starring Halle Berry, and was also the screenwriter for the 2002 film debut of Britney Spears. Name either movie. Um, I don't know the name of the H- award-winning HBO movie uh-huh. starring Halle Berry, but I certainly know the Britney Spears Crossroads. <laughs> you are right. Yes. Um, so the Halle Berry movie is introducing Dorothy Dandridge. Oh, right, That's right. That's what she won. You had mentioned awards about that. For. Yep. Um, yes. And as Lauren mentioned, the 2002 film debut of Britney Spears is Crossroads. Um, critics gave negative reviews to Crossroads. However, they considered it a better effort when compared to Mariah Carey's 2001 film, Glitter. Yeah. Uh, despite the response from critics, it was a box office success, grossing over $61.1 million worldwide in My just God. three months. That's amazing. Question two. Pay attention to this multiple choice. On whom would you find a distinctive hairstyle feature called a payot or a payos? Um, is it A, an Orthodox Jewish male, B, a Japanese samurai, C, a French can-can dancer, or D, a St. Bernard? 
I'm torn. I'm torn between samurai and Orthodox Jewish man. I'm going to go with Jewish. Yes. Yes. It is an it is found on an Orthodox Jewish male. So the Torah apparently says, you shall not round off the payot of your head. And mm. the word payot was taken to mean the hair in front of the ears, extending to beneath the cheekbone on a level with the nose. So members of this branch of the Jewish faith have interpreted the regulation as applying only to men. And it has become custom in certain circles to allow the hair over their ears to grow and hang down in curls or ringlets. Yep. I didn't ever, I never knew what they were called. Yeah. It's a, um, it, I've seen different spellings. A payot is P-A-Y-O-T, or payos, P-E-Y-O-S, and some variation thereof. Okay. In hindsight, that sounds like a very um, uh, Hebrew or Yiddish uh-huh. word. Yeah. Great. Question three. Check your watch. Based on a novel by the same name, what is the title of the 2018 sci-fi adventure film directed by Ava DuVernay, which made her the first African-American woman to direct a film that earned at least $100 million domestically? That is A Wrinkle in Time. It is A Wrinkle in Time. By the beautiful book by Madeline Lang. Yes. So, um, of course... The film starred Oprah Winfrey, Weiss Witherspoon, and Mindy Kaling as Mrs. Witch, Mrs. What's-It, and Mrs. Who. Um, another cool fact about DuVernay, um, she was commissioned by the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture to create a film which debuted at the museum's opening on November 24th, 2016. So the film is called August 28th, A Day in the Life of a People. Um, it tells of six significant events in African American history that happened on the same date, not in the same year, but on the same date, yeah. August 28th. So the 22-minute film stars Lupita Nyong'o, Don Cheadle, Regina King, David Oyewelo, Angela Bassett, Michael Ely, Gugu Mbathra, uh, Andre Holland, and Glenn Turman. And events depicted include William IV's Royal Assent to the UK Slavery Abolition Act wow. in 1833, uh, the 1955 lynching of 14-year-old Emmett Till in Mississippi, oh the release of Motown's first number one song, Please Mr. Postman by the Marvelettes, uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s 1963 I Have a Dream speech, the landfall of Hurricane Katrina in 2005, and the night then-Senator Barack Obama accepted the Democratic nomination wow. for president at the 2008 Democratic National Convention. That's amazing. Yeah. Have you been to the African American Museum yet? yet? I haven't either. I mean, I'm so re- I'm never in DC, um, but I think I I met somebody or I know someone who went recently. It's supposed to be phenomenal. Oh, it's ama- It's um, supposed to be amazing. Like one of the best museums, just right off the bat from day one. Yeah. So I am very much go. looking forward to it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and as referenced by one of our listeners, Mara, um, in 2016, Ava DuVernay also directed 13th. Um, this is titled After the 13th Amendment, and it's a documentary documentary centered on race in the United States criminal justice system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. Question four, also known as the father of the bob, which hairstylist popularized the close-cut geometric bobs of the 1960s worn by Mary Quant, Grace Coddington, and Nancy Kwan? Uh, is that Vidal Sassoon? It is Vidal Sassoon. Vidal Sassoon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he later began his own line of hair care products in distinctive brown bottles, advertising with the slogan, if you don't look good, we don't look good. Oh, that's good. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah. good. Vidal. Uh, question five. Catherine Bigelow broke through the glass ceiling in 2010 when she became the first and so far only woman to win the Academy Award for Best Director for The Hurt Locker. Among the other Best Director nominees that year was her ex-husband, to whom she said, I do, in 1989, but later let go in 1991. What was his name again? Is that James Cameron? It is James yeah. Cameron. Oh, he's such a dick. <laughs> 
that was so that is sweet irony yeah so yeah so both james cameron and Catherine Bigelow were nominated for the oscar the golden globe and the bafta award for best director for films released in 2009 so cameron's was for avatar Bigelow's was for the hurt locker cameron won the golden globe but sure. Bigelow won the Oscar and the BAFTA for yeah. Best Director, becoming the first woman to win either. Which, come on. Really? <laughs> in 2009? In the however long period, mm-hmm. like, history of film? Yep. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Come on. <sighs> Question six. Don't monkey around. Open wide and say, ah. The practice of cutting or shaving some or all of the hair on the scalp as a sign of religious devotion or humility is called What? All right, you're giving me plenty of clues. And I'm almost positive I touched on this in a previous episode. I think you might have, yeah. And I cannot remember what it is. Okay. If you open wide and say, oh, what do you see? The ceiling? No. Like oh, it. oh, the uvula. Okay, well, what else? The tongue. The tonsils. Okay. Oh, tonsure. 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 What was the monkey thing? A monk would have it. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah, good, that's yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tonsure. Um, it can also refer to the secular practice of shaving all or part of the scalp to show support or sympathy or to designate mourning. A current usage more generally refers to the cutting or shaving for monks, devotees, or mystics of any religion as a symbol of their renunciation of worldly fashion and esteem. And I think I, I read that even like some... Um, religious sex, like when you are ordained as a priest, they do still like cut a piece of your oh, hair really? off. Maybe they don't necessarily <laughs> shave the whole circle, but yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was an article in The Cut recently that I didn't get a chance to read yet about um, a history of women cutting off their hair as like a, a turning point in a film. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And like what that means yeah. and, and how that has become like a trope kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I should really sit down and read that because it did seem interesting, but you know, I got to work. <laughs> I work full time. <laughs> I can't read every article that I come across, unfortunately. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. All right. Question seven. Lady Bird is a 2017 coming of age comedy drama about a high school senior. Don't call her Christine and the turbulent relationship with her mother. Previously known for writing and starring in several mumblecore films. What is the name of the screenwriter and director of Lady Bird? It's uh, I can't remember her name. It's like Gwen or Gertrude or Jerry. What's what's her first name? Greta. Greta. Oh, Greta. Oh, I can't remember. Just tell me. Greta Gerwig. Greta Gerwig. Damn it. Mm-hmm. I knew it was alliterative. Ugh. At the, She's great. At the 90th Academy Awards, <laughs> Lady Bird was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay for Gerwig. Best Actress for Saoirse Ronan and Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Laurie Metcalf. Uh, Gerwig became the fifth woman in history to be nominated in the Best Director category at the Oscars. And the only other female directors to receive the nod are Lena Wertmuller for Seven Beauties in 1977. Mm. Jane Campion for The Piano in 1994, Sophia Coppola for Lost in Translation in 2004, and then Catherine Bigelow for The Hurt Locker in 2010. Wow. Was it good? Did you see Lady Bird? Yeah, I really loved it. Okay. Yeah. I got to see it. It's it on Netflix, I think, now, or oh, yeah. Amazon or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, question eight. Worn proudly by African women for centuries, what is the name of the protective hairstyle made by sectioning the hair into parts all over the head, then twisting those individual sections until they form mini knots? Those are called Bantu knots. They are called Bantu knots. Um, So Bantu knots are said to have originated centuries ago with the Zulu tribes in southern Africa. Bantu is a comprehensive term used to describe the 300 to 600 ethnic groups within southern Africa that spoke the Bantu language, according to the South Africa History Organization. Um, In recent times, this culture 
cultural style has been worn by celebrities such as Mel B, Rihanna, Lauren Hill, and Uzo Aduba's character on the popular Netflix oh, right, series, yeah. Orange is the New Black. Mm-hmm. Yep. Also, Bjork wore it in her uh, Big Time Sensuality uh, video. Right. That was like 1994. Yeah. And Bjork is a big old weirdo. Yeah. So. But, but then, yeah, in recent years, like some of the Kardashians have worn their hair oh, like it yeah. and like on the Mark Jacobs runway, they did it and people were like, hey, please don't do that. Yeah, it's yeah. not. You guys shouldn't do that. And if, if you're going to do it, you should at least like credit. Yeah. Acknowledge right. where it's coming from. Yeah. Don't be like, so, look, I made up a new hairstyle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Mark Jacobs called them like mini buns. Oh, stop And people it. were like, no, these are Bantu knots. My. Yeah. Uh, my family has been doing this for centuries. <laughs> yeah. Please. Please leave please it alone. Stop. Yeah. Cultural appropriation. It's the worst. We do not condone cultural we d- appropriation. Misinformation does not condone cultural appropriation in any form. Question nine. Uh, Indian American director Mira Nair is responsible for a slew of international hits, including the 1991 film Mississippi Masala and 2001's Monsoon Wedding. What was the title of her most recent film, a 2016 Disney drama starring David Ayuelo, Lupita Nyong'o, and Medina Nalwanga about a Ugandan girl who becomes a chess master? Uh, that is the Queen of Katwe. It is the yes. Queen of Katwe. Mm-hmm. I feel like we saw that trailer like oh my gosh like every time we went to the movies in 2016 times that summer yeah yeah so um Miranair owns a production company called Mirabai Films uh which specializes in films for international audiences on Indian society whether in the economic social or cultural spheres and among her other best known films are The Namesake and Salam Bombay which was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film so we got we got ladies out there yeah and also, Netflix has been really pushing, not pushing, but has been acquiring a lot of um, Bollywood mm-hmm. and also uh, South Korean oh, film. Man, I love Bollywood dance stuff. Oh my gosh. I have a friend who's like obsessed uh-huh. with Bollywood stuff and has she has a degree in like Indian culture and like mm-hmm. literature and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, it's just so joyful. It's yeah. just so great. Yeah, I'm into it. And finally, question 10. Pulling a page from Lauren's book, I'm going to name four potential names of haircuts or hairstyles. And you tell me if it's a real hair-related thing. I got this. Ready? I got this. I got this. Okay. First, a quiff. Real. Real. Yep. It's a hairstyle that combines the 1950s pompadour, the 1950s flat top, and sometimes a mohawk. It has been seen on Bruno Mars, Justin Bieber, Demi Lovato, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Um, two, a burr. Okay. This is where I was kind of tripped up. I'm going to go with... Real. A burr. Real. Yes. It's a type of haircut in which the hair on the top of the head is cut short in every dimension and um, typically the same length at uh, five millimeters or less following the contour of the head. So that's a real tight. That's a tight shave. Third, frangipane. Uh, No, that's a kind of like pie or cake. It's almond filling. (laughs) Not a hairstyle. Mm -hmm. And last, telegio. That is a kind of cheese. It is a kind of cheese. (laughs) Not a hairstyle. Great job. Woo. Nice. That was good. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> Hairstyles and lady directors. It's great. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, well, if uh, if you want to get in touch with us and talk to us about how much you love Stanley Kubrick and how wrong Julia is about her opinion, or no, actually, if you want to yell at me about how wrong my opinions are <laughs> about Stanley Kubrick, because I know that Stanley Kubrick can be a little divisive. Um, feel free. Email us at misinfopod at gmail.com. Uh, you can uh, visit us on our Facebook page, Misinformation, colon, a trivia podcast. 
And you can uh, hit us up on Twitter. We are at MissInfoPod. Send us a tweet. We are pretty good at getting back to people. Yeah. Yeah. And our website is www.missinfopod.com. If I don't know. I zoned out while you were talking. <laughs> Sorry. It's all right. You don't have to listen to me. You know where, how to reach us. Um, yeah. So if you found us, thank you. Uh, please tell a friend. Uh, we are on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and whatever podcast app you prefer with our RSS feed. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Yeah. Tell a friend. Thank you so much to everyone who has reached out to us and told us that they enjoy this podcast. We are still, I don't think I'll ever get used to it. Like, oh yeah, my listeners. Like, I don't think I'll ever get used to it. It's really amazing. So thank you all for listening. We're so humble. We are. (laughs) We are so humble. Um, So yeah, thank you for listening. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.